choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anison. You're listening to episode 279 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Leaving the Moon, Part 2. The engine is armed, standing by. Ground confirms ignition. We're burning 40%. It was 8.40 in the evening in Houston when the lunar module Aquarius was set to relight its descent engine for its four-and-a-half-minute burn. But out near Christmas Island, due south of Oahu, it was 3.40 on a bright afternoon. Though the entire world could listen in on Apollo 13's air-to-ground communications, courtesy of NASA's aggressive public affairs office, the entire recovery crew could not. One of the Iwo Jima's radio officers could pick up the conversations between Capcom and crew from a communications satellite, but the connection was fuzzy and the transmissions could not be broadcast around the carrier. As a result, it was the satellite officer alone who would be able to eavesdrop on the burn. Elsewhere on the ship, Another communications officer in another radio room was in contact with Mission Control itself. It was this officer who arranged for the regular telephone conferences between the Iwo Jima and Houston, and he would be the first to get the word when the PC Plus 2 burn was complete. Shortly before 3.30, Mel Richmond and a handful of other recovery team members appeared in this second radio man's office to wait for the news to arrive. Across the ship in the satellite office, the lone officer at the air-to-ground radio listened in on the spacecraft chatter that the rest of the Iwo Jima couldn't hear. Houston copies. Attitude looks good at this point. Roger. Boris Houston, you're looking good. Roger. One minute now into the burn. Dips is looking good. Two minutes into the burn. Press, you were looking good at two minutes. Still looking good. Two minutes, Roger. Velocity building up. Uh, Disky shows we've gained 451 feet per second at this time. Reports to Flight Director Gene Krantz indicate all systems are looking good. Coming up up on three minutes into the burn. Press your go at three minutes. Press, Roger. 
The onboard display shows less than a minute to go in the burn now. Coming up on four minutes into the burn. Don't forget descent reg one off, uh, 10 seconds to go. Shut down. Roger, shut down. That was uh, Commander Jim Lovell reporting shut down. The engine is off. We're at 79 hours, 32 minutes into the flight. Are you reading uh, 1640, uh, Houston? Uh, Roger, we're reading it. We'll proceed. Here's our residuals. Roger, very small. Apollo Control. 79 hours, 33 minutes, uh, 5,707 nautical miles out from the moon at this time. I say that was a good burn. Roger, Level said, and now we want to power down as soon as possible. In the satellite room of the carrier Iwo Jima, the communications man sat back and removed his headset. He knew that Apollo 13 was in fact coming their way. Across the ship, in the second radio shed, Mayo Richmond and the rest of the recovery team stood in a semicircle around the silent radio set. Finally, nearly half a minute after the burn ended, a call from Houston crackled into the radio's little speaker. Iwo Jima, Houston, at 79 hours 32 minutes into the mission. Paracynthium plus two burn complete. Predicted splashdown 600 miles southeast of American Samoa, at 1.42 hours, 54 minutes, ground elapsed time. Roger, the radio man responded in his microphone, burn complete. Around the room, the recovery team turned to one another and smiled. Well, Richmond said to the officer standing next to him, it looks like we'll have work to do on Friday. Back at mission control, as soon as the PC plus two burn was complete, Gene Krantz, seated at the flight director's console, took off his headset, stood, and surveyed the room. Like Jerry Griffin's gold team several hours ago, Krantz's white team responded to the successfully completed maneuver by breaking into a spontaneous back-slapping celebration that by mission control standard qualified as pandemonium. And, like Jerry Griffin several hours ago, Gene Krantz was inclined to let the celebration run its course. He figured the team deserved its moment of self-congratulation. Besides, soon enough, he would have his hands full with something else. If Krantz knew the personnel in this room, and he did, he was convinced that momentarily three men would be converging on his station. And, if he could predict what they would be coming here to say... And he could. He knew that the meeting would be tense. Looking one row down and to the left, he could see Deke Slayton, who had been standing behind the Capcom station, heading toward his console. Looking back to the fourth row, he saw Chris Kraft remove his headset at the flight operations station and walk down a level. 
Behind Kraft, in the glassed-in gallery, he could see Max Spaget, the head of the Space Center's engineering and development branch, and one of the first men appointed by Bob Gilroof to the Space Task Force that formed the nucleus of NASA 12 years earlier. Faget was threading through the VIP throng and making his way into the main room. Krantz sighed and stubbed out the cigarette he had lit at the beginning of the PC Plus 2 burn, which had now burned down to his fingertips. Slayton, the closest of the three approaching men, arrived first. So, what's our next step here, Gene? Well, Deke, Krantz said, measuring his words, we're going to work on that. I'm not sure how much there is to work on, Slayton said. We're going to put the crew to bed, right? Uh, Eventually, sure. Eventually may not do it, Gene. Their last scheduled sleep period was 24 hours ago. They're going to need some rest. I know that, Deke, Krantz began, but before he could finish his thought, he heard another voice over his shoulder. It was Krantz. How do we stand with those power-down plans, Gene? It's coming along, Chris, Krantz answered levelly. Are we ready to execute it? We're ready, but it's a long procedure, and Deke thought we ought to get the crew to sleep first. Sleep, Kraft said. A sleep period six hours. Take the crew off stream that long before powering down, and you're wasting six hours of juice you don't need to waste. Besides, Level agrees. Didn't you hear him on the radio? But if you keep them up and have them execute a complicated power down when they're barely awake, Slayton said, someone's bound to screw things up. I'd rather spend a little extra power now than risk another disaster later. From behind Slayton, Faget, who had now reached the group, nodded a greeting to Krantz. Hello, Max, Krantz said. Deke and Chris were just telling me what they think our next step ought to be. Passive thermal control, right? Faget said matter-of-factly. PTC, Slayton sounded the alarm. Sure, said Faget. That ship's had one side pointing to the sun and one side pointing out to space for hours. If we don't get some kind of barbecue roll going soon, we're going to freeze half our systems and cook the other half. Do you have any idea what kind of pressure it's going to put on the crew to ask them to execute a PTC roll now? Slayton asked. Or what kind of pressure it's going to put on the available power? Kraft added. I'm not sure we can afford to try something like that at the moment. And I'm not sure we can afford not to, Faget countered. For several minutes, the argument at the flight director station played out with Kraft, Slayton, and Faget arguing their points fiercely, and the men at the nearby Capcom and Inco stations occasionally turning their heads for a sidelong look. At last, Krantz, who had remained uncharacteristically quiet throughout, held up his hand, and the three other men, all of them technically his superiors, stopped speaking. Gentlemen, he said, I thank you for your input. The next job for this crew will be to execute a passive thermal control roll. He turned and nodded to Faget, who nodded back. After that, they will power down their spacecraft. 
He nodded to Kraft. And finally, he said, looking at Slayton with a flicker of apology, they will get some sleep. A tired crew can overcome their fatigue, but if we damage this ship any further, we're not going to get over that. Krantz turned back to his console, and Faget and Slayton turned to leave. Kraft, however, stayed where he was. Standing behind the station he had previously occupied from 1961 to 1966, the man who had trained Gene Krantz to perform the job he was now performing considered objecting to the decision his one-time protege had just made. But before uttering a word, he changed his mind and walked away. Whatever the flight director chose to do, regardless of the mission rules, was law. Kraft himself had written that rule 11 years earlier, and now he was going to have to live by it. For the next two hours, the fatigued crew in the broken spacecraft performed the chores the ground ordered them to perform, only afterward getting the okay to go to sleep. Even then, the rest periods would be stingily doled out, with Hayes going off for three hours sleep first, and Lovell and Swigert staying on watch in Aquarius until he returned. Now, well past midnight Houston time, Hayes's sleep shift was almost at an end, and the two men left behind at the helm of the lunar module found themselves nodding off for a stolen nap as well. Sleeping in the cold, noisy cabin of Aquarius was difficult, but not impossible. The trick was to tell yourself that you weren't actually trying to go to sleep, that you were simply closing your eyes for a few minutes, and that even as your mind went blank and you slipped into light slumber, floating in front of your instrument panel, you were really still awake and on watch and prepared to respond to any emergency. Suddenly, Jack Lousma, Capcom for the graveyard shift, called into Lovell's ear. Okay, and um, it's time for you guys to get to bed and get Fred up. <laughs> Lousma told Lovell to return after three hours at 85 hours, 25 minutes elapsed time. Lovell rubbed his eyes, took two steps back toward the tunnel, and jumped up into Odyssey. Approaching Hayes in the right-hand couch, Lovell shook him awake. The ambient temperature in the command module was now, as Lovell guessed, down in the low 40s or high 30s. But around the sleeping Hayes, a thin layer of nearly body temperature air had formed in the absence of gravity, which meant an absence of convection. The warm air would not be any lighter than the cold air around it and then would not rise and drift away. Helping Hayes out of his couch, Lovell scattered the atmospheric blanket his junior pilot had spent the last three hours creating and sent him down to the limb. Lovell then climbed onto his couch, wrapped his arms around himself, and curled up against the chill that his own body heat had not had time to change. A moment later, Swigert floated onto his own couch and did the same. At his station in Odyssey, 
Lovell could hear the still bleary haze banging around in the limb, collecting his headset and signing on the air to Houston. Though Hayes was obviously keeping his voice low for the benefit of his crewmates, even a whisper was audible in the cramped ships, and as Lovell tried to allow his mind to carry him to sleep, he could not help listening in on the one-way conversation taking place on the other side of the tunnel. This is Apollo Control at 82 hours, 30 minutes. Here in Mission Control at this time, we're in the process of completing a shift change. Flight Director Milton Wendler and his uh, maroon team of flight controllers replacing Flight Director Gene Kranz and the white team. The lunar module has been essentially powered down, and at the present time, you know, we're showing a total current uh, on the lunar module uh, ranging between 14 and uh, 15 or 16 amps, which is about what was expected. Lovell closed his eyes tighter and turned to face the bulkhead, swirling the cocoon of air around him that had only just begun to warm. Lovell's thoughts turned to re-entry. The last update he had gotten from the ground indicated that he and his crew were barely 15,000 miles from the moon and moving at only 4,800 feet per second, or less than 3,000 miles per hour. Their speed, he knew, would get slower before it got faster, decreasing steadily until they had traveled another 24,000 miles or so, and the gravity of the Earth pulling them forward took over from the gravity of the Moon pulling them backward. Until that happened, Lovell would not be especially comfortable. A ship that was 15,000 miles from the moon was still 225,000 miles from home, way too far out to relax. Lovell reflected as sleep began to overtake him. Since Monday night, he had calls to feel a lot of emotions, but optimism was not among them. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 279 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Leaving the Moon, Part 2. We finished up a little bit early because uh, we're going into a different subject. We're finally reaching the carbon dioxide problem. That will be on next week's podcast. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, check out the Space Rocket History Archive. It has episodes 1 through 104 available right now. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you, Patreon donors, who honored your pledge this month. We're going to go for a 100% retention rate in December, I hope. Okay, I have a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, my sources were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure's Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, The Apollo Flight Journal, The Johnson Space Center, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. Wikipedia. 
Well, it looks like the COM problem has gotten a lot better on Apollo 13. Since that S-4B stage crashed into the moon, that helped a good bit. But what also helps is when they turn on the amplifier, which they can't do all the time because that uses up too much power, so they just have to run it on low power. But anyway, it is a better communications. I got better clips this week, and for the most part, it was bad. There was some noise coming in on some of them that was pretty bad, but most of it was better. Okay, my source, the Apollo 13 Flight Journal, has sadly run out. That's right. It stops in the middle of the mission. Well, not really the middle, toward the end. And there is no more Apollo Flight Journal for Apollo 13. It says coming soon on the website, but it's not there. <laughs> it makes it a lot harder when trying to check the transcripts of the mission because that's what the majority of that flight journal is. Okay, I also want to mention that when I was playing back the burn, I cut out a whole bunch of long, silent places. So things in real life didn't happen quite as fast as that audio clip would indicate. And the last thing I want to say is I think Jim can have a little bit of optimism now because things are a whole lot better than they were Monday night when that tank blew up. We have certainly come a long way since then. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast this week. Michael G. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Tom F. from Australia sent in another donation this year and moved to the Vostok level. And Don E. from Buffalo, New York, pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Thank you so much. We surely do appreciate that. Our Patreon donors are now at 199. That is three below the record, believe it or not. We have the goal of reaching 218 by the end of the year, so we are 19 Patreon supporters short. And our overall donors have reached 383 with a goal of reaching 418. So we are 35 donors short of that goal. If you would like to support the Space Rocket History Podcast, we would certainly appreciate it. It's very easy. You go over to spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button, or the Patreon link. Uh, All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. We also have longevity bonus icons that you get for each year you support the podcast. And if you decide to sign up with Patreon or make a one-time donation before the end of the year and then make another one in January, you will be awarded a longevity emoji based on how many years you've donated. So it's a really easy way to increase your level of emojis. If any of that is confusing, just go to the homepage and click on the Donors tab up top, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Donors are also eligible for the giveaway we have after each episode, and today we're giving away the SRH logo magnet. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Paul Edwards. That's Paul Edwards. If you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and let me know your address, and we will mail this out to you. 
Okay, this is the end of content for this episode, and you are welcome to stay and listen to some random off-topic thoughts that I have. Thanks for sticking around, folks. haven't updated you on what's going on around here recently, so I wanted to do that. This is SRH, and I just got back from a camping trip to the Midwest. We saw some really beautiful country out in Wisconsin and Indiana. It's really flat out there. It's, the, it's quite different than the foothills, because the foothills, we've got hills all over the place. But that's a really flat area for the most part. Very beautiful land out there, and we saw a lot of corn. We didn't find very many uh, space-related places, but we did find where a fragment of Sputnik 4 crashed in September 1962, and that was in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. All that was there was a marker that was in the sidewalk and a metal circle in the road, which I'm thinking indicated the actual spot where the fragment crashed. There was not a lot to see there, so that didn't take but about 10 minutes. We also stopped at the Grissom Air Museum in Peru, Indiana. Now, that was a very small museum. It had about 24 aircraft. There wasn't very much on Gus Grissom there, which is, I was was hoping to see a a good museum for Gus Grissom there, but that's not the one. It doesn't take very long to see, and if you're in the area, it is worth a visit, but I would not make a special trip for it. There's just not a whole lot there. Uh, We did visit quite a few interesting historical sites, and since we like NFL football so much, we made it a point to visit Green Bay, Chicago, and Indianapolis. And we we had pretty good luck with the cellular Wi-Fi this trip. So that was nice being able to stay online, at least with 3G. We only had one major problem as we traveled. The roller bearing in one of the camper wheels failed. So we had to get that fixed. Funny thing is, I had greased all the bearings on, on the wheels before we left. So I guess some type of contamination got in there and wore it down, but all in all, it was a pretty great trip. We really enjoyed it. Now this week here in the U.S. on uh, uh, Thursday, we are celebrating Thanksgiving, and I wanted to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. I know I have a lot to be thankful for this year, and I hope you do too. And I'm really thankful that 383 of you have chosen to support the podcast financially so far this year. I certainly appreciate it. We both do. Okay, folks, that's about all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode number 280 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.